welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. Today, we discuss the global meat industry, the impact it's having on climate change, the way it's driving deforestation, and we speak to Ethan Brown, CEO of Beyond Meat, one of the new companies that is transforming the way meat is consumed around the world. Thanks for being here. Cool. So this week we're going to talk about meat and there has been a pretty sudden realization that meat consumption is really one of the primary drivers of climate change and a gradual and then very sudden realization that we can do something about it. This year in particular, it has been a really highly prominent issue with the visibility of the fires across the Amazon and the realization that most of those fires are around clearing land for pasture for cattle, which goes into beef. Now, if you add it all up, uh, livestock uses about a third of global global cropland and contributes 15% of greenhouse gas emissions. But that kind of masks the major driver um, around land use that is making this situation worse. So there's a huge amount of big global issues that we can dig into here. But I think it would be interesting to start by asking Paul if he's a vegetarian. <laughs> well, thank you, Tom. What a lovely way to set me up. I've... <laughs> been taking my carbon footprint pretty seriously for the last 19 years and uh yeah really you know i i spent a long time answer the question paul (laughs) yeah this is a tricky situation you know i begin to understand the world those politicians occupy when actually one of the best ways to answer the question is to ask a different question back to the person who's asking you the question so if we think about vegetarianism and meat consumption generally I may be able to avoid actually having to personally answer regarding my own consumption. Does that make sense to you? Right. <laughs> well, I have a story to share with you that will answer the question that Tom has asked Paul and which Paul refuses to answer. The very reasonable question, the I very, would say. The very, very, yeah, the elephant in the room question. So, um, just a few months ago, I was visiting in London and Paul was so excited to take me to a little hamburger place uh, where he has become a regular consumer of plant-based hamburgers. In fact, Paul being the creature of habit that he is may actually consume one plant-based hamburger per evening. Now, when we went, he was so excited because he thought he was going to give me the thrilling experience of my lifetime. Quite to his disappointment... I tasted this hamburger and I went like, well, I don't really like it because it tastes like meat. The lesson from that story is that this plant-based meat that is being produced or plant-based protein, whichever you want to call it, is a fantastic product for those who are not vegetarians or for those who still like the taste of meat or for those who crave meat. And frankly, that is the majority of the population around the world. So it is a huge contribution to have those products. And my second point that I wanted to share with you is what I think is fascinating about this plant-based products that are coming on the market is that they are, there is a very helpful and accelerating confluence between demand because there are more and more people wanting plant-based protein, 
supply through innovation, because there are more and more companies supplying it, and market recognition that this is a product that is going to increase its market share. So once you have supply, demand, and capital moving in confluence with each other, that those three together make for exponential growth. And I think that is what is brilliant about these products. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you, Christiana, you, you've t- you've sort of touched on my um, my rather flippant question there, and pointed out what I think is really exciting about this space, and that is that until now, the products that have entered uh, this area have largely been aimed at meeting the needs of vegetarians and vegans, which together account for approximately eight percent of the market in developed economies, and it varies in other parts of the world. But that's small, right? But now the innovation that is taking place is actually taking market share from meat eaters and creating products that appeal to meat eaters. And as a result of that, the predictions for growth are huge. So Bernstein, the market analyst, uh, thinks plant-based meat could be 15 to 20% of the US protein market within 10 years. And UBS, the investor, predicts that plant-based meat will grow from 4.6 billion in revenue today to more than 85 billion in revenue in 10 years time and they mentioned that even they think that this could be an understatement so this has tremendously positive implications for greenhouse gas emissions and for land use and paul can still be happy and get his burgers so that's the that's the heart of it for me i, I it's important that i'm happy what is the electric vehicle about what is the electric vehicle about it is not about banning cars it is about saying we're going to replace the internal combustion engine with an electric engine. It is not necessarily about banning meat. It may be that in some future date, meat is banned. I don't know if that's ever going to happen. But the incredible power of a company like Beyond Meat, I'm so excited to talk to Ethan Brown. I cannot wait because the power of that company to be able to make a burger that I prefer to a beef burger, genuinely. I was uh, in New York and we, 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 I ate uh, like a, from a Dunkin' Donuts, uh, a bacon and egg, uh, beyond meat bacon, uh, you know, breakfast. Uh, and it was delicious. It was perfect. It was, it was kind of better than bacon. I think the, the, you know, governments obviously have a role in climate change. We're all very much involved in recognizing the role of governments. But the private sector, the profit-making company has such power to move so fast. I am literally personally on fire with the potential of the company Beyond Meat and others that will come to join because... Unlike the oil companies, they don't have oil rigs out in the sea. They don't have refineries. If they can make a better product, companies uh, like, um, like, like McDonald's or, or Burger King can replace meat incredibly quickly. Yeah, I think I think that's right, Paul. And I think also, I mean, what's interesting is the plant-based meat companies and Beyond Burger and other Beyond Meat and others have come in with what we might call a Tesla strategy, which is that they have built a high-end product and built a reputation as a highly desirable product and focused on the desirability for consumers. Um, but they've made it kind of top end. It does outprice um, other forms of comparable protein. But they built a great, great reputation. And then as the cost comes down, that will then enable them to capture more and more market share. Um, but before we get carried away too much with, uh, with meat substitutes, uh, and we'll get into this when we talk to Ethan as well, we should also double down on the very significant impact that meat currently has. Um, I read a recent article uh, in the New Yorker that quoted a study that pointed out that for every four pounds of beef 
that you eat. It contributes as much to climate change as flying from New York to London. And the average American or British person eats that much a month. So I would say that if you are a citizen and you're concerned about climate change, then along with engaging in political action and trying to minimize your flying, changing your consumption ha habits to eat less meat is probably the biggest thing that you can do. I find that very hard to believe that a month's meat consumption is equal to a return flight from Europe to the US, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm yet to be convinced, but it's good to hear. Well, that's spoken like a true carnival, Paul, but that, that is from Stephen Chu, the Nobel Prize winning former energy secretary, <laughs> but I'm sure you know best. Seriously, though, I mean, I do totally recognise that meat is the is the utter disaster in my in my carbon footprint, and I am that's why I'm so keen to speak to Ethan Brown because Beyond Meat has really begun to cure me. That's what's that's honestly, I've uh, honestly, I just cannot tell you how happy I am. But can I pick up on Tom's point because um, you know so many people feel helpless around climate change. What can I do? It's such a big issue. Governments are not doing as much as they should. Oh. Financial capitals are not moving as quickly as they should, et cetera, et cetera. And so many people feel that they would want to contribute in some way at their personal level, but they just don't know how. So I really want to underline what Tom has just said. This is how. Uh, and it doesn't mean that if someone is eating meat seven days a week, three meals a day, um, that that you have to go to zero, but it does mean beginning to reduce it does mean beginning to look at either the days in which just pick a day and don't consume meat or pick a meal as is provided, as is, um, as is uh, proposed in the book, We Are the Weather, where he says, you know, just start with breakfast. Don't consume meat products at breakfast ever. And then move to, you know, maybe lunch and dinner. Or start with Mondays, meatless Mondays. And then go to Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's not, this is not, you know, from, from 100 to zero. This is something that can be done gradually under your own control, according to what you think you can do. And the interesting thing for me, having gone through that process many years ago, is that there is a, an inflection point that comes and is different for every person where you really do lose your taste for meat. And that's interesting. That's very interesting. And for me, what happened was first I lost my taste for meat, but I still had my olfactory senses way up there. And whenever I would walk by somebody making a barbecue, I'm like, oh my God, that is so fantastic. The smell was so fantastic. Now I can't even take the smell. Um, but you know, that that's a journey, it's a personal journey and it's different for everyone. But the point is each one of us can start on that journey. Yeah. I mean, I think the truth is that this will probably ultimately be solved by a rise of flexitarianism rather than by necessarily a rise of vegetarianism and veganism. So I was actually, uh, I went vegetarian after the IPCC 1.5 report actually. And I just looked at that and I thought, I just can't do this anymore in terms of eating meat. But I have kids who really like eating meat and it's a real challenge. So sometimes we still cook meat for them and I eat meat when it's left on their plate because it feels worse to throw it away. And I can imagine that actually I'll get to a point where I will eat meat periodically a few times a week or whatever else or maybe less. And I sort of think that probably is a solution that will be net net effective for a wide number of people rather than vegetarianism, which at the moment feels too far away for a range of people. 
Um, but I just want to take us into what I think is a really big systemic issue for a couple of minutes before we come back and talk to Ethan. Um, the UN still predicts there'll be 10 billion people on the planet by 2050. Uh, a very interesting report from Lancet suggested that if we're going to feed that number of people and not destroy our climate, then meat, dairy and sugar all need to drop by at least 50% against the rising context of a number of people. And I think one of the most thorny, tricky issues here is the number of people who currently are dependent upon that industry for their livelihoods and how frightening this change will be. In the US alone, the meat and poultry industry is responsible for 5.4 million jobs. That's compared to only 50,000 in coal mining. So if we are to make this transition, this concept of a just transition, how do those jobs evolve? If that demand is going to be... If the, if the production of meat necessarily has to change and move to plant-based and move to flexitarian diets, etc., then our political systems aren't strong enough to withstand that much of a change in employment patterns in an abrupt way. We have to have systemic policy solutions to help those people into new work. Mm. Well, can I completely disagree with you? Because I think that... Please. ...fundamentally misunderstands the nature of the change. It is infinitely more efficient for uh, farmers to produce food to feed us uh, with 10% of the land. So the question is, what are they going to do with the other 90% of the land? Suddenly we're liberating farmers to have far more exciting and productive farms. And that is uh, an amazing opportunity for them. It's it's ridiculous to see it in the negative. You know, when all those people who used to look up, have you any idea how many people used to look after the horses before we had cars? There were millions of blacksmiths putting horse hoofs on and there were loads of people who were going around delivering hay and they all went in about 10 or 20 years and nobody batted an eyelid and no one talked about yeah. the great horse unemployment i mean that's ridiculous so yes we have to have some sensitivity to make sure that people are supported and, and government could be really good at that we can use some of our carbon tax revenues which will be soon be coming uh, to help people who are working on that transition but i totally reject that there's some kind of societal risk i think that's rubbish what do you think, Christiana? Well, I don't think it's rubbish. Um, I do think that it is uh, an issue, but I wouldn't put it... I guess I'm sort of in the middle between the two of you because I don't think that we can ignore it, Paul. Um, I think it has to be very deliberate, the transition for those farmers, as you say, who will be able to use their land much more productively. Um, but they still need to figure out what they do. And if you have for generations been uh, a cattle rancher, you don't necessarily know how to grow plants. Uh, and you don't know how the, what the fertility of your land is for plants and the climatic conditions, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a transition there. There definitely is a transition, whether these people can do it on their own or whether they need support from governments and from large companies who would be buying the new plants from them. Um, I think that's only fair. I don't think that the burden yeah. of the transition should be only on the shoulders of those who will transition. Yeah, and, and I, what, where I do agree with you, Paul, is I think that the end result is super exciting, right? The end result is, a you know, nobody's going to necessarily, in the end, miss the sort of slave galleys of this awful factory farming that we have around the world. So the end result of that is land for reforesting, land for rewilding, the ability to grow different types of food, etc., 
What I'm talking about is just, I think we're currently missing the big policy ideas that get us from here to there and that look after large numbers of people on that transition. Ah, but there's a grand alliance of, you know, health experts, climate change experts, animal welfare people, um, policymakers, you know, people with ideas from local government, from regional government. Um, I think it could be just a a wonderful and fantastic thing. Think of all those jobs, you know, when when computers came along and, and email replace letters. Yes, lots of people whose job used to be to type letters lost their jobs straight away. But once again, do you remember us looking back and saying what a terrible thing that was? Do you remember us having some kind of pain point around that? I actually think that the that, that we, we we have it within our power to, to have many, many new jobs. There'll be fantastic new leisure opportunities as a result of all this new land. There'll be fantastic new food opportunities. And we need armies of people to insulate our homes, to decarbonize our economies. There's jobs for everybody if and when we focus on climate change. Awesome. All right, well, you guys are going to go and talk to Ethan, which I think is yes, very exciting. Are. Yes, we are. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm I, I have to say, just, um, I was just looking the other day. I mean, a year ago, there was almost none of this plant-based meat in different places. You now can get impossible burgers of some kind or, or beyond burgers in Burger King, McDonald's, A&W Canada, Hard Rock Cafe, Cheesecake Factory, Red Robin, TGI Fridays, Del Taco, Dunkin's, Little Caesars. I mean, it is everywhere and it's just burst onto the scene. It's so exciting. Let's go talk to the star of the show in this great movement, Ethan Brown. All right. Super. Thanks, guys. Let's talk to him. Ethan, thank you so much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism. Uh, we're uh, both Paul and I, who will be chatting with you today, are very excited about our conversation. And obviously, the conversation will focus on uh, protein-based meat. But before we get there, Ethan, I'm just absolutely uh, just intrigued about your background. I mean, how on earth does a renewable energy leader move over to something that most people would think is completely unrelated, such as protein-based meat. Right. Uh, well, thank you so much. It's, a, it's an honor to, to be with both of you, and I really uh, appreciate so much the work that, that you both have done on addressing what I think is, is the biggest issue facing this planet. Uh, I think, how did I get into this with, with fear and trepidation, I think is probably <laughs> the, way to, the way to think about it, um, but also a kind of unrelenting call. You know, I, I struggled to make a transition in my career toward this because I felt that you know, the training I had had um, and the, the focus I had had in my career was really appropriate for uh, renewable and, and transformative um, energy technology. And, uh, and, you know, kind of leaving that and going out into the, into the woods um, and, uh, and starting a, a, a company that's trying to make meat from plants just seemed strange. Uh, and it took me a long time to get comfortable with that idea and and just shedding other people's expectations about what I should be doing and and um, you know that took a long time and and uh, and so um, I thought about this issue for years before I started the company. Um, you know, I in my early twenties, um, you know, I, I the first investment I ever made um, individually uh, was in a company called Worthington Foods, which be, is, had a brand called Morningstar, which was of course later bought by Kellogg. So this is something that's been on my mind for a very long time. I, I've, I've never felt that you needed an animal to produce a piece of meat um, once I began to understand the biology of meat. 
Um, and so got very intrigued with the notion that, that you could, uh, like everything else we've done uh, with innovation in, in, in human societies, uh, could try to create something more efficient. Um, and, uh, and so began that quest, and, and I was very fortunate to, to, to begin to ask these questions at a time when you know, knowledge and information was being shared more freely than, freely than ever uh, due to the Internet. Um, so I could come home from work put the you know, kids to bed and, um, and read. And so I read a lot about science uh, that was behind taking protein directly from plants and uh, basically resetting the bonds to uh, put it into the form of muscle, at least to the human century experience. And so I spent a lot of time trying to understand the best ways to do that before starting the company. And Ethan, um, the motivation for starting the company was the negative impact of animal agriculture on our planet, or was it because you could foresee uh, growing demand for healthier food, or both? Yeah, a- absolutely the, the former. Um, you know, it, as I said, it was sort of an uncomfortable calling for me. It was one that, that um, you know, I had a, a really decent career going and and uh, and was very comfortable um, and knew that this was going to be a hard road and so uh, didn't didn't necessarily do it for economic reasons um, at all actually um, I I felt very strongly about four things and and you know they came to me at different points in my life but the earliest motivation for me um, to be just completely transparent and honest um, was as a child. And so I had an interesting childhood where I, I grew up in Washington, D.C. and in College Park, Maryland, but we spent an enormous amount of time uh, at our farm in, in, uh, in, in Maryland uh, and then uh, as well as the one in Maine. And uh, I just learned a lot about agriculture. We had about 100 head of Holstein uh, cattle uh, as a milking operation. Um, it was supposed to be a, a hobby farm, but, but my dad's kind of entrepreneurial, so he turned it into to a business as well. So I knew a lot about uh, animal agriculture, but I also fell in love with the animals that were in the fields and, and the ones that we'd welcome into our home as pets. And so I began to be challenged by the notion that some animals were, were treated as units of production uh, to be maximized in terms of efficiency and optimized in terms of efficiency, and others were you know, uh, more treasured members of the family. And I didn't understand why I struggled with that as a kid. I mean, I just, I just didn't quite have a framework for thinking about it. But as I got older, I read Darwin. And, uh, and that was really transformative in terms of my understanding of, of why I felt that way. And I can talk about that later. But then when I finished college, I was thinking about what to do with my life. And I, I went to my dad's office and, and uh, was sort of telling him I wanted to, to go screw around <laughs> for a little bit because I felt like I'd been just, you know, working pretty hard and, and, uh, and, and things of that nature. And he asked me an important question. He said, what's the biggest problem in the world? And I thought a lot about that. And I, I said, I think climate, because you, know, you can be the most brilliant actor on Broadway or uh, the most transformative you know, uh, social leader on issues of, that, are, that are incredibly important around civil rights and things like that. But if our climate is destabilizing our entire society, you know, all of those things uh, will be uh, frustrated. And so I felt that that was the most important thing that I could do with my career was to go after climate and a natural way to do that because I didn't quite understand uh, where all the emissions were coming from at the time. I felt that you know, uh, automotive uh, was an important place to focus on and so automotive and, and stationary power. So then added climate to that and then I began to learn about the health implications of excessive uh, animal protein consumption, um, whether heart disease, diabetes, or cancer. 
And then lastly, natural resources, just the, the sheer amount of, I mean, the, the numbers are staggering when you think about how many animals are in the um, agricultural system. Uh, you know, I think the numbers vary in terms of which estimate you're using, but there's over 100 billion, according to some estimates, animals that are, that are uh, in, in the agricultural system being slaughtered. Each of those requires a, you know, a, a, a king's ransom of resources uh, compared to going directly from plants. And so all of those things motivated me. And so at the company, we have something called the Four Horsemen. And it's not of the apocalypse, <laughs> but it's of, uh, of uh, the possibility for hope and change. And those are what I just mentioned. They're human health, uh, climate, natural resources, and welfare. All four of those things motivate me every day. Well, that's fantastic. And I would say one of your, uh, well, one, one of the million people uh, or millions of people who are very happy that you made that choice to, uh, to go into the field <laughs> is Paul Dickinson. So, Paul, do <laughs> share your enthusiasm. Well, I, before I do that, I just have to, you know, uh, Ethan, you have a kind of beard, but I'm just going to try and get you to blush here because, um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I have, I've involved in a charity. We have 8,000 corporations reporting through us. I couldn't be more proud than to be speaking to you now. Well, I wrote a book so called much. Beautiful Corporations published by the Financial Times. Aww. I believe you are the most beautiful corporation. Oh my God, um, that means the world to me. Just because, you know, the, the, the corporation is, is, is the how the world is run in the 21st century and, and, mm. and the way your company uh, debuted on on the New York Stock Exchange. The mm. way you've been growing, the, the the way you've been communicating calmly and clearly what you're doing, mm. it's an inspiration for me. I hope and believe mm. the greatest food scientists in the world will be making their way straight to you. Thank uh, you so much for saying do, that. My goodness, <laughs> no, my are goodness. Are you blushing? Cooking, are you right? blushing? <laughs> Yes, I'm closing my eyes. Uh, it's hard to hear all that flattery. And, okay, and, uh, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna start breaking up and cracking up and start crying myself. I'm gonna stop, and <laughs> I'm gonna you ask so you a serious you, question. You know, Paul, well, for a British lot, yeah. person, you're quite, quite emotional this morning. <laughs> oh well, I just look. It's, it's honestly, it's because you know, like I cut my carbon footprint every which way, but only you, Ethan, actually managed to, to sort out my my mm. food consumption. So, so you know, much. it's was just respect, respect. Listen to the business of climate change which is something I've been involved with for, for 20 years. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most interesting questions for, for, for people listening to the show is, you know, if we assume over time that there is a just transition, there'll be people moving away from animal agriculture. Let's say that's going to happen at some scale. Um, what kind of crops and, 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 and agricultural products are really the feedstocks for, for the industry you've been with others helping to, to invent, Ethan? What, what, what might people be growing more of uh, as we might move uh, to reduce animal agriculture? You know, I absolutely love that question. Um, I just, I just, I, I think about that all the time. I think about it for a couple of reasons. Um, one is I think that our role in agriculture is misunderstood and, and there's a lot of fear uh, within the agriculture community about what this transition could mean. Um, and you know, I just want to do everything I can to dispel it because I think, I think it's really important for me that people understand how much I respect the families that are in agriculture. Uh, when it comes to hiring people for my company, for example, if I learn someone grew up on a farm, <laughs> you know, they have a huge uh, hand up in terms of, uh, or leg up in terms of, um, you know, my interest in, because I, I know their work ethic can be very strong. Um, so it's, it's something that um, I look at and, and, and think about the digital uh, economy and, and what that did for our urban communities that are affluent, not necessarily the, the impoverished parts, but the, you know, Silicon Valley, the uh, tech corridor in, uh, outside Boston or in um, uh, Washington, D.C. and Virginia, all of these areas, you know, experience just incredible uh, 
um, explosion of wealth, um, and it transformed how we communicate what we're doing now, et cetera. But agriculture was left out of that, in my view. Uh, you know, there, there really was not the same transformative economic impact of the sort of greatest series of innovations that we've had in the last 30 years. I think this innovation can be as transformative for for agriculture as that digital uh, one was for our, our, our urban um, and uh, business economies. So we had the University of Michigan do a, an analysis on the environmental impact assessment, uh, a, a life cycle analysis on the environmental impact of our uh, production process. And this was done by an analyst there, a, a member of the faculty who um, is not particularly sympathetic to what we do. I mean, he does a lot of work for the livestock industry as well, or has done work anyway for the livestock industry. And uh, the numbers were, were absolutely staggering. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain why I think this is important for farmers. Um, but we use 99% less water. We use 93% uh, less land. We emit 90% fewer emissions and use about half the energy. And so the one thing that I want to focus on within that is that 93% less land. So if I'm a farmer and I have 100 acres, you know, I can now grow on seven acres uh, what I used to use the entire 100 for in terms of producing the same amount of burgers. And so all of a sudden, I've been basically through efficiency, you know, gifted those, uh, those additional 93 acres. And that goes way back to what you think about John Locke, to reference one of your <laughs> folks about thinking about the privatization and the um, efficiency of land, right? Every time you increase efficiency, you can create wealth, right? And so uh, that's what's happening under this system. You can grow corn, soy, and wheat uh, for, uh, for animal feed. Uh, or you can grow protein crops directly for human consumption. I'm a big fan of the idea that you should grow protein crops for direct human consumption. And intuitively, people can grasp, I think, that you're going to make more money growing something that goes more directly into a human's mouth than going into uh, a, a, the a animal's mouth. Yes, it is a detour, right. And so, and I just find this endlessly fascinating. You know, if you think about it, and I've used this analogy before, but, you know, um, <sighs> You think about the the landline, and you know no one had to rail against the landline to make the mobile phone successful and popular. It was just a better product, right? And so, our goal, you know, is not to denigrate livestock or or farmers that are growing feed for livestock, but in every case, try to present an innovation that can make the consumer's life better and can make the farmer's life better. And I believe that that this is the case. Um, so when you think about different crops. You know, it's a very narrow, constrained, and impoverished, in my view, set of, of crops that we use today in the sense that they're almost derivative or they're, um, they've been developed or scaled up for other, other means or other markets, rather. So if you look at um, the most ubiquitous one, which we no longer use, but soy, you know, a lot of that work occurred around soybean meal and then concentrate for animal feed. If you look at peas, the history of pea uh, protein, uh, is really interesting to me. It was something that was initially scaled up, not uh, because of the protein, but rather because of the fiber. Uh, and they were separating the fiber from the pea for things like glass noodles in Asia. And then 20 years ago, or so someone said, "Look, you know, let's figure out how to sell this this protein." And so you get the isolates, et cetera. But let's think about the plant kingdom more purposely. Let's begin with the end in mind on this regard. In this regard, and if we do that. Then all of a sudden, literally dozens, if not hundreds, of crops become available uh, for us to use as as uh, plant-based feedstocks for plant-based meat. And so the ones that I like would be things like um, lupin or camelina. I'd like mustard seed. Um, we're starting to use more mung bean. We're using sunflower seed. We're using brown rice protein. So there's a tremendous diversity. I think that's not only important for the farmer, 
Uh, it's not only important for our sustainability story because we want to use crops in the regions that we're selling, uh, but it's also, I think, really important for the consumer. You know, mom and dad uh, don't go to the grocery store and buy, um, you know, uh, the same protein for every day of the week. They, they'll buy, you know, beef, they'll buy pork, they'll buy salmon, chicken, et cetera. Uh, and so we are going to provide plant-based meats in each of those categories, but we do it from the same protein. I think that becomes fatiguing for the consumer. So I want to offer, you know, sausages that are made from lentil. I want to offer sausages made from, from, from lupin, different sources. And I want to combine those sources too. If you think about our breakfast sausage, I love this product so much because one, it, it just really delivers, I think, on the promise of eating what you love. You know, you can get up in the morning and have a delicious breakfast sausage, but you have 50% of the, of the fat. You know, you've got more protein, you've got more iron, you have less sodium, all these things. But we've combined protein from sunflower seeds, from mung bean, from brown rice, and from peas. And when you do that, you get a PDCAS measure, uh, which is the protein digestibility in your body uh, that, that is really strong. And so we actually exceed the protein content of the pork uh, equivalent. So there's a lot there in unpacking uh, the feedstock we use. And I think a tremendous... Um, possibility for innovation and growth in, in American and global agriculture if we if we do this right. Ethan, so it's very exciting to see um, how you are um, going going into different types of products, not just um, hamburgers. Here, here's a question: When you put out, you know, a sausage or a beyond, I don't know, beyond goat or beyond fish or you know whatever <laughs> you're going to beyond, do you intend? to imitate, and I use that word cautiously, the taste and the texture of the product that you're substituting, or is your intent to bring out the natural flavor of the crops that you're using as ingredients? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And I get asked a very similar question um, by my mother a lot. Well, she's like, why are you obsessed with, you know, uh, the meat profile, and she respects it, and is a big fan, and everything else. But but why not? She's always why not just build you know ter terrific tasting protein for the center of the plate, and uh, and not have to have it be like beef or, or poultry or whatever. And you know my answer to that is I only know what the consumer loves. You know that I I can't guess what the consumer loves. Right? I I know that the consumer loves beef, pork, and poultry. And you know we evolved eating uh, you know animal protein. Uh, you know I'm not a, a, a vegan that would suggest it's not important to, to who we are. But I've said this many times that you know it, I think the reason we're having this conversation and, and and our ability to to communicate and do so many things that humans do is, is really due to that decision to 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 to, to transition to a more uh, meat centric diet. It allowed our, our stomachs to become uh, much more efficient users of energy as we didn't have to process so much uh, you know raw plant material. Um, and that freed up the energy to go to our brain, and our brains grew significantly. I think from 600 to 1300 cubic centimeters. So it's it, it's we we are indebted to it, but we've also been given a brain that will allow us to figure out how not to use it anymore. And I think that's the that's the kind of irony and the beauty of it all is 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 uh, maybe we had to pass through that to get to where we are, but we certainly don't have to keep it around. Um, and so uh, I just know that that's what the consumer loves. It gives me a really clear, true north um, to to go after. Um, and uh, otherwise, I'm kind of guessing in the dark. And I also want this to be complete. You know, I mean, I, 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 we have to be cautious about how we frame this. But, you know, I, the, the, the flexitarian movement is incredibly important to me. And, and, and I, I really respect people that are leaning in. But at the end of the day, you know, I want to be that group of people that have separated meat from animals. Like, it's really important to me. And, and so if we offer an alternative that is not, you know, doesn't taste like any of them, 
but becomes just another option, uh, I think we fall short. We have to get at the core of this and, and provide. You know, again, I get back to that phone. You know, no one's walking around calling the iPhone a fake phone. You know, it's a it's a real phone. <laughs> it's just different from the landline, and we have to create products that are so compelling, so good, so desirable that all the fake alternative substitute language falls away, and this is understood as meat. Yeah, and and I loved it. I was watching you talking uh, somewhere else about uh, how yeah, does meat really have to come from animals? Christiana, yeah. I happen to know you are a very very brilliant cook. Now, can I put it to you, Ethan, that what you're doing? is the opposite of cooking. Cooking we've been doing for thousands of years and it's making the same things taste different. And what you are doing is making different things taste the same. And I just, it just blows me away how clever that is. Yeah, we're trying as hard as we can. And I, it, it's so, I mean, I'd love to have you guys here in our labs. It's just a, I'm so uh, in awe of the, of the science that they're doing. And, and, um, and so many of these people are they're so young and they came out of uh, biomedical and they, probably thought five years ago they'd be spending their career working on various cancer drugs and things like that, which are very admirable. Um, but they're now looking at this as preventative medicine. And so we, we I think that's 95% of the people that are in our science uh, division here uh, have some background in biomedical. Uh, and so um, their job is to to scour the plant kingdom to find, you know, we, have this, we have this system where we isolate the molecules in meat that we believe make meat taste and have the aroma of meat to the human century experience and then it's a matching game and we try to match those with molecules and plants and then draw those out of the plants and then assemble them in ways that uh, under heating and uh and and uh, uh, of course uh, you know the, the time you know let's say it's eight to cook a burger for eight minutes or something that they're being released uh in a way to our century system that, that basically tells us hey this is a piece of meat so a little test to that a little test to that um because some of our listeners may not have test tasted your products um but paul definitely has paul do you think that ethan has actually achieved success of what he's just described can i actually give context before he does that I'd be the first to say that we haven't. Uh-huh. I think we're close, but we have many miles to travel. I mean, so, so, uh, and I don't know what version he's had, if he's had our latest version, but I closer. Was it you that said uh, that, 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 that a beef burger is as good as ever going to be, but our product is going to get better and better every year? I mean, I love that. that. I, I look at it every day. Yeah. So this is where I think it, it, it's going. I think you're already, you, you know, you, you, you had me at when I first bought one and I kind of preferred it to the, to the beef burger because oh, I wanted you. that to happen. But I have very high confidence that your incredible team and the science you took I got one more difficult question from 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 the listeners. You know, what's your biggest challenge? How are you ever going to ramp up production? How are you ever going to scale? You know, you, you this is not like Amazon buying a few more servers. You know, you've got to do big stuff. How are you going to do it? So you mentioned Amazon, and 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 Amazon is on my mind as I try to solve for that problem. Uh, you know, we have so much demand. It's it's such a blessing. The consumer is moving so quickly in our direction for all the right reasons. It's just exciting. But um, so, so when I was facing that challenge, and I've faced it for many years now, and not done a great job, you know, like 17 and 18 over the summer, we had issues, uh, pretty significant ones, uh, fulfilling demand, it just caught us off guard. Um, you know, we had a much better run this summer um, after a lot of investment in, in new facilities and partners and equipment and everything else. Um, but, you know, as we look to, um, you know, be a global protein company that is supplying protein not only here in the United States, uh, but in, in the EU, uh, in, uh, in, in, in Asia, uh, in India, et cetera, uh, Africa. Uh, we need to have the, the greatest uh, logistics and production team 
known to man. And, uh, and so one of the people that I'm bringing in uh, at a senior level uh, is from Amazon. Uh, and, uh, and it's just that scale and that ambition I love. And, uh, I, I love, I, I love Amazon and what they've done and, and, and just the, the, the breadth of their thought and, and, and their commitment, you know, if, and, and my, 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 um, I was interviewing someone for a supply chain role the other day and I said, you know, the supply chain is not here to survive. It's here to become a competitive advantage for us. How are you going to do that? Like, how can you create a supply chain that is an absolute competitive advantage for Beyond Meat, a logistics chain that, you know, that sets us apart. And, and that's really what we're looking for when we build out the production team. So we'll get there. We just have to make sure that, you know, our actions match our ambition. Hmm. Salute. That's all I can say. Let's do it. <laughs> Ethan, here's a, here, here's a crystal ball question to, uh, to wrap up. Um, will we ever get to the day in which we are not killing any animals for food? Um, I just, that's an amazing question to ask. Um, so one of my heroes is a guy named Albert Schweitzer, and uh, it's after his you know philosophy, reverence for life, which he uh, came up with uh, while pondering the question on a boat uh, in Africa, where he'd left the, you know all the comforts of Europe and was there treating lepers. And um, you know it's that notion that uh, any ethic should begin with a reverence for life and and not be just uh, focused on on human forms of life. Uh, and and I just find that a, a fascinating and endlessly uh, enriching way to think about the world. And and um, you know, I was just reading. I'll answer your question, but I was just reading a couple of days ago uh, a study from the University of Illinois, um, where and as as genetics become better understood, we're learning more and more that there really is no separation between humans and animals, but we're all a continuum. Um, of, of, of similar genetic matter. Um, but I had it open here uh, on my phone. This is by um, two geneticists at, um, at, at Illinois, um, Shook and Beaver, and they said they created a side-by-side -side comparison of the human genome and the pig genome that re reveals remarkable similarities. We took the human genome, cut it into 173 puzzle pieces, and rearranged it to make a pig. Everything matches up perfectly. The pig is genetically very close to humans. Now those genes can express themselves differently in a pig than they do a human. But I think the key is that Darwin was absolutely right. There are no, there's no sharp separations between species. Some are more intelligent in one way than another. Some are maybe more emotional in one way than the other, et cetera. Some have different gifts. Um, but we have suffered for, for, for hundreds of years under the, you know, the illusion that we are separate from the rest of life on earth. And, you know, uh, we, we at one point thought that, um, you know, the, the, the planets, uh, uh, orbited the Earth and you know learned later that it was the Sun. We thought the Earth was flat. Learned later that it was round. And I'm absolutely convinced that we will overturn this notion that we are separate. And so I think it'll come with an understanding that the animals that we keep around us are in fact our ancestors, and that we should afford them some degree of, of respect that we don't today. Um, but uh, it'll come with that understanding. And I don't know when that'll happen. That is the comment of a true business leader, if I might uh, attribute that to you. Uh, we don't hear business people talk about that so much. Thank you so much. Well, well we don't hear business people speak about that. Um, and what I think is fascinating is the overlap with many spiritual uh, practices that understand this fundamentally and very, very clearly that we're all sentient beings here uh, and owe each other uh, owe each other that honor and that respect. Ethan, thank you so, so much. Really appreciate your sharing of your um, personal 
life and your thoughts and certainly your aspirations for the future, which we all share. So thank you so much. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for doing what you're doing. I really appreciate it. And thank you for including me. Okay, guys. I mean, I thought that was a remarkable conversation with Ethan. I mean, what an amazing entrepreneur and visionary and innovator and so creative. And um, what, what are you left with after that conversation? What are your impressions and, and, and what, what, what were your main takeaways? Well, apart from being completely starstruck by this kind of, I, it's kind of embarrassing actually. Um, but I was, I was starstruck because um, it's actually really quite a small company. And, and as a, as a, as, you know, I'm, I'm, I kind of idolize corporations, um, but uh, in, in some regards anyway, or in some aspects of them. Um, and, and I'm amazed by their scale. And yet, yet here's the, 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 the head of really quite a small company, but the potential inside that company is what was exciting me so much. And quite separately, I think he has a lovely voice. Yeah, I, I think I've been thinking about the generational piece, a, a leader that is clearly from a younger generation, certainly than mine. And that is, I think, exciting the um, demand in the market also from that younger generation. I, I'm just really struck over the past few weeks about how... I'm not sure if I should call it a generational divide. I don't think it's a divide. I think it's a generational tsunami that we have coming upon us where the um, certainly the millennials, but others around those generations are just taking over. They're taking over as the um, dominant demand. They're taking over as the dominant leadership in corporations, the dominant deciders of capital. And they're, it's all coming upon us. And I would say, thank heavens, right? With a very, very different sense of what this world is and what they want to create. So I'm just, I'm just really struck by that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, two things that, that struck me from the conversation. The first is just the vision of the guy. I mean, you know, he he said at one point that we don't need, you know, I've never thought we needed an animal to create a piece of meat. And the path to that view has come somewhat been smooth now for most of us by the rise of plant-based meat. But I would never have had that thought, um, you know, prior to this world being kind of prized open and opened up for them. So... I mean, just the level of kind of like vision and determination to see the world in a different way. And I think, you know, the other thing is that um, that's the that's the exciting thing about this time, right? Is those innovations and suddenly the world is different. I mean, people have been trying for years to make meat more efficient, you know, grass-fed beef and all these other different things. And you get a few percentage points improvement here and there. And then bang, this arrives. And these burgers, which to my mind are more delicious than other burgers use over 90 percent less land 93 percent less land so if we think of the future as a sort of straight line with incremental changes from the present then we sort of can get a little bit despondent about what the future might look like but actually 
we're now in a world of such exponentials you know and it's true of climate impacts but it's also true of solutions you know bang all of a sudden we can produce food in this vastly different way and that is very inspiring as we consider our potential to create a vastly better world well that that's exactly i guess what what i mean that we have been struggling for so many years to think of improvements inside the box tinkering inside the box and you know one one more little screw here maybe maybe uh, one more nail here or remove one nail here or whatever um, and and this generational tsunami that we have coming upon us it's not that they're thinking outside the box they're just thinking without a box and and putting solutions on the table that are completely disruptive in the best use of that term and using the business system to be able to potentially scale those. Um, you know, what does he say? What I know about the consumer is that they like meat, which is just such a clever observation. So to have those incredibly skillful, um, what is it, 95% of our science division have a background in biomedical, using, you know, this super high technology to actually make meat out of plants is so clever. And then to the conversation we were having earlier, 90% more land for farms. And, and uh, you know, he, he talked about how he gives, uh, he gives preference to people who want to come work at Beyond Meat if they've grown up on a farm. He sees uh, the, 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 that transformation being potentially as valuable to people who are farmers as the digital revolution has been uh, to, to, to Silicon Valley. Uh, I think that's a very bold, a very exciting vision. All that land, think of all that we can do. So exciting. Yeah, and... As you think about the future, as we get on top of this, it's the change of land that has so much possibility. And then I think that people get really excited about in terms of a regenerative future that, you know, we can create a future in which the forests come back and the biodiversity comes back. And innovations like this kind of really give us line of sight to those sorts of things. So, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was very inspiring. It's my favorite interview, and you also allowed me to interview him, which I thought was a very special thing. Yeah, that's a good point. That's your first interview. What, what do you think, Christiana? Is Paul allowed back to do other interviews? As long as he keeps his enthusiasm a little bit reined in. Yes, less fanboying, please, Paul. Um, I understand. I understand. All right. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you in a week's time. Bye. Bye. So it just remains for me to say that Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. I'd like to thank everyone who made this happen. Callum Grieve, Freya Newman, Pete Clutton-Brock, Chloe Revel, Marina Mancilla, and Zoe Cholacantic. I'd also like to thank Nigel Topping and Michael Northrup. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and please do hit subscribe and leave us a review. We also love the feedback podcast at globaloptimism.com so many of you have been writing in and we do try to respond to every email thanks for that kind of feedback we really appreciate it please keep them coming we'll see you next week